Verge podcast with Real Lit. Neil, we've got David Fagenbaum on the show today. For listeners not familiar with David, who is he? So, Danny, I am incredibly excited to welcome David to the show today. David is a physician scientist at the University of Pennsylvania. He is a co-founder and president of the Castleman's Disease Collaborative Network and national best-selling author of Chasing My Cure, a doctor's race to turn hope into action. He is also a patient battling a deadly disease called idiopathic multicenter Castleman's disease, which he discovered a treatment for that is saving his own life as well as other lives. He also co-leads Every Cure, a nonprofit drug development organization focused on advancing repurposed treatments. Uh, David earned a BS from Georgetown University, a master in science from the University of Oxford, and a medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania, as well as an MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Just to give a little background here, David was on the brink of death five times and had his last rights read to him. The medical system did everything they could, which was limited given how much was known about his disease at the time. And so the system failed him time and time again. And so David realized that in order to save his own life, he needed to take his medical care into his own hands. As you know, I spent a lot of time focusing on the rare disease space where David has been a force and a source of inspiration for so many people. His personal story, which he tells in his book, Chasing My Cure, is compelling, but what was your response reading the book? I mean, it was just such an incredible journey that David was on. And I mean, my response was just, you know, David was in a unique position where he was a medical student at the time and had the medical training to give him the ability to take treatment into his own hands. You know, throughout the book, he talks about how the system had failed him and it, it, he went through four relapses. And it was finally after the last one where he, I guess, almost gave up hope in the existing medical establishment and realized that he had to figure this out for himself. And fortunately, he had the training to be able to do so. And so it, you know, from a 30,000 foot view, I mean, it really reminds me that, you know, we really have to take our treatment into our own hands in many respects. And not all of us have the ability to do what David did. Obviously, we don't have that type of training, but we need to be proactive about our own medical care just at a very high level. And so that was incredibly powerful to me. Um, and and so the, the book was really just so inspiring and just a little additional context, right? So I was actually working at a at a company by the name of Notable Labs at the time. And the, and the founder of that company was inspired by this book because we were looking for uh, drug repurposing efforts for uh, glioblastoma at that time. Um, and so, you know, as you mentioned, David is just, just such a, a sort of a force of nature and, and a powerful force. I think what he, what he, the story that he shared has inspired so many of us throughout the industry. Um, and his story is just so incredible. And to, to do what he's done, overcome what he's uh, overcame. And now what he's doing at Every Cure, I think is just, just really amazing. So I'm really excited to dive into what he's doing at Every Cure as well. Beyond his own story, he's really been an innovator who's reshaping the way rare disease patient organizations approach research and drug development. He's also been an outspoken advocate for drug repurposing now with 
his newly created nonprofit, EveryCure. What are you hoping to hear from David? Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to hear what EveryCure is doing around drug repurposing. I mean, drug repurposing is, is nothing new, right? That, that, that idea and concept has been around for a long time now. There are some systemic barriers that I think have prevented it from really taking off. And so I'm excited to, to, to learn from David uh, what they're doing differently. Uh, at every cure, um, you know, if you if you think about rare diseases in general, right? Rare diseases in as individual diseases are very rare, but you know, I think there's seven to nine thousand rare diseases uh, that exist in in the world, right? And I think the the latest stat that I saw is that one out of ten people in the U.S. have a rare disease, which is about thirty million people. So taken together, rare diseases aren't rare at all. So what David is doing is. I think can have a huge impact uh, for so many people out there. So I'm really excited to learn about how, how they're uh, doing some of this repurposing and what's different than efforts that have been done in the past. Well, if you're all set, I'm all set. Let's do it, Danny. David, I am incredibly excited to welcome you to the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Neil. So I first read your book, Chasing My Cure, when it came out in 2019. I remember it well because I was working at a precision oncology company in the Bay Area called Notable Labs, which was started by a founder who was trying to find a cure for his father who had been diagnosed with glioblastoma. None of the existing therapies were effective, and he and many of us who worked at the company took your story as inspiration. We'll get into your story momentarily, but first, I I really just want to say a, a big thank you for having the courage to share your deeply personal journey with the world. Oh, thanks so much, Neil. It's been um, such uh, such a journey, um, to, to use your words, and um, so many ups and downs. And I just feel like if you're going to go through all these challenges and, and, and learn things along the way, it's important to share these lessons with the world. I, I, I couldn't agree more, and I think you've, you've inspired so many of us uh, along the way. So, David, today we're going to talk about your new nonprofit organization, Every Cure, your focus around drug repurposing and how your efforts to save your own life from a rare disease led you down this path. For those who aren't familiar with your personal journey, I'd like to start with your story, which you tell in your book, Chasing My Cure. So, David, take us back to when you were a sophomore in college, because there was a pivotal moment you talk about in the book when your mother was battling and ultimately died from cancer. How did that shape your focus as a medical student and your subsequent journey? Well, it really changed everything. My mom and I were so close and um, to uh, have her be diagnosed first with cancer and then pass away during my sophomore year really just changed everything. And it made me um, decide that I wanted to go into medicine. I wanted to chase cures in her memory. I wanted to treat cancer patients like her. And so I was just laser focused on this mission, uh, finished up undergrad, went to grad school at Oxford, focused on cancer prevention, and then came to Penn for medical school. And I was three years into my medical degree, and I was sort of achieving that that goal that I had set out when my mom passed. And I, and I, I promised her that I would do this in her memory when out of nowhere, as, as you know, I became critically ill myself. I went from being this healthy medical student who wanted to treat patients in my mom's memory to being the critically ill patient in the ICU myself. And, and David, could you talk a little bit about um, th- that, that journey? So you were diagnosed with a rare condition, Castleman's disease at that time. Um, wh- what did it take for you to get a diagnosis and how challenging was it at that time to diagnose someone with Castleman's? 
it was really tough. There was uh, no diagnostic criteria existed back then and, and very little was known about the disease. And so basically I was a third year med student. I was on a OBGYN rotation and I felt more tired than I'd ever felt before. I mean, I was exhausted and hard to even describe just how tired I felt. I noticed lumps and bumps in my neck and um, I noticed some pretty bad abdominal pain. And eventually um, I took a medical school exam and then went down the hall to the emergency department and they ran some blood tests and they told me, David, your liver, your kidneys, your bone marrow, your heart and your lungs are all shutting down for an unknown cause. We have to hospitalize you right away. And it was just so frightening to, to, to find out that I was literally, you know, all my organs were shutting down. Um, uh, but unfortunately, over the next 11 weeks, it would only get worse. And I would be transferred to the intensive care unit where a retinal hemorrhage made me temporarily blind in my left eye. I gained 70 pounds of fluid um, because my organs weren't working and I drifted in and out of consciousness. Uh, I was so sick that I actually eventually had a priest came into my room and read me my last rites when I was 25 years old. And, and really, you know, could not have been more sick. Um, uh, fortunately, at really the last possible moment, right around the time I was having my last rites read to me, um, due to this awful disease called Castleman disease, the diagnosis finally came back. And, and my doctors didn't really know anything about the disease. I just certainly didn't know anything about the disease. And um, that's when I realized uh, just how important it was uh, to do two things. One is to find the expert who is the expert for your disease. And two is to realize that um, the expert may know everything that the world knows about a disease, but for diseases like Hasselman's, um, I would need to get involved in the journey and the fight to try to find more and more information about this horrible rare condition. And, and David, I, I want to jump into to Castleman's here in a minute, but you, you mentioned something in the book that really stuck with me where you initially ignored your intuition about being sick in favor of evidence. And I think many of us can probably relate to that. But, but what have you learned from that experience? Well, everyone in medical school thinks that they have horrible diseases like Castleman's and that they're going to die very soon because you learn about all these horrible diseases in medical school that you otherwise would never hurt, hear, hear about unless you had someone that you love that had them. And so like all of my classmates, I was starting to get sick and I thought, oh my gosh, I have this horrible disease. And, and I even told my medical school roommates, I said, guys, I don't know what this is, but I think I'm going to die. And that's just like totally uncharacteristic for me to be, to be so dramatic. But, um, but I really, I mean, I, I, it actually, there was some truth to that. I had this horrible disease that was brewing, um, but uh, you know, no one knew what it was. And so let's, let's talk about what it is. So what, what is Castleman's disease? Sure. It's an inflammatory disorder that really sits at the intersection of, of cancer and autoimmunity. And, and by that, I mean that we can't categorize it yet as to whether it is actually a cancer or whether it is actually an autoimmune disease. Um, in, in medicine, you learn that many diseases uh, sit in the grayness of medicine, where they're kind of like one thing and kind of like another. And in uh, humans, we like to lump things into categories. Unfortunately, Castleman's sits at the intersection. So it's got features that are like lymphoma and features that are like an autoimmune disease. And I like to, to say it's kind of the, the worst features of both in one disease. And basically your immune system becomes hyperactivated and then attacks your vital organs for an unknown cause. So it's like this full-blown attack on all of your organs. And we don't know why it's happening. And your immune system, our immune systems are very powerful. And if they want to destroy your heart, your lungs, and your kidneys, they can do it pretty quickly. And um, so uh, unfortunately, the way you treat it 
is to either target one part of the immune system to figure out how do you basically diffuse the bomb? How do you stop this immune system from attacking you? Um, or you just wipe out the whole thing with chemotherapy. And um, back then, this was back in 2010, very little was known about the disease. And so I needed the carpet bomb approach, which is just wipe out the whole thing with chemo. And, and then let's talk about why there was so little known about the disease at that time. So, David, I, I think I've heard you reference that Castleman's disease is, is about as common as ALS, which I think most people are probably heard of and affects about 18,000 yes. people in the U.S. Well, why, why don't you think more people have heard about Castleman's disease or what, why haven't there been more research dollars being funneled into the disease? It's a, it's a great question. Um, I think it's important to sort of get a sense for the scope of rare disease. So there are actually about 9,000 rare diseases. And so um, each one of them on their own is rare by definition, but collectively they're really common. And when you have 9,000 diseases, um, uh, you know, there, there's a lot to, for the public to become aware of, right? So, you know, the public can't be aware of all, all 9,000 rare diseases, but certainly the public is aware of some horrible ones like ALS. Um, but like you said, Castle is, is similarly common um, to ALS and unfortunately much less public awareness and much less funding. Um, and I think there's a, probably a few reasons behind that. One is that ALS is kind of an outlier in terms of rare diseases in the fact that it does have such great public awareness um, in part because of some celebrities that have sadly um, had this horrible disease and also in part because it is uniformly fatal. So everyone who gets ALS as of right now, will die from their ALS within anywhere from one to five years after diagnosis. And so given that it's uniformly fatal, it deserves lots of attention. Um, a disease like Castleman disease that is similarly common and also uniformly fatal for a subgroup of us um, does not always get the same sort of attention um, just because there are so many rare diseases that we sort of get lost in the mix. But I've tried really hard uh, through writing Chasing My Cure and through trying to uh, raise awareness about the disease through the Castle Disease Collaborative Network to try to get people aware of this really horrible disease. And, and, and David, I, I want to talk about the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network here in a minute. But th there was a line from your book that really stuck with me where you you mentioned that before you got sick, you had this Santa Claus view of medicine. What, what, what do you mean by that? And, 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 and what do you think of sort of medicine today? Yeah, Neil, you may, you may think that I'm just, I was just very naive. But really, when I went in, into medicine, I really believed that there were teams of researchers working together, coordinated in a coordinated fashion, collaborating to try to figure out what drugs could treat what diseases. And there was sort of this engine at work. And, and I talk about Santa Claus as the analogy because I can picture uh, this workshop of elves working together, you know, uh, creating the toys, delivering the present right in time for you on, on Christmas Day. And that's kind of what I envisioned medical research looked like. Um, and then all of a sudden, I became critically ill with this disease and started to dig into what does medical research actually look like? It doesn't look anything like Santa Claus's workshop. I mean, what it really looks like is a bunch of individual researchers spread out all across the globe, not working together at all. In most cases, they've never even met one another. In many cases, they're working on the exact same things and maybe failing on the exact same approaches. Um, and it is, it's frightening how um, uncoordinated it is, how fragmented it is, and how random 
research is. And I think for me, the randomness was maybe the hardest part is like, wait a minute, we have to kind of hope that the right researcher comes up with the right idea for the right project at the right time with the right skill set. And that's how you get a drug that works for a disease. It's just sort of a bunch of random things and stars have to align. And so for me, um, my mission early on became, how do we take this randomness of like, you know, all these things aligning and, and create a system here so that we're not just relying on, on hoping and waiting, but that we can really create a system to encourage and, and facilitate uh, breakthroughs and cures. And so you, you really, really began researching the disease from, from your bedside and, and the system that you just mentioned is, is the Castleman's Disease Collaborative Network. So it's probably a good segue to, to talk about that. Can you, can you talk a little bit about um, what that is? I mean, you mentioned sort of, you know, some of the problems you were trying to address, but, you know, give our, give our listeners an idea of sort of the scope of, of what, what, the, what that network is and, and what you're trying to accomplish. Sure. So I think that um, I, I alluded to it a bit, but it's helpful to think through tr- the traditional model for rare disease research. And the traditional model is that groups like the CDCN, we raise money from families and friends, and then we invite researchers to apply for the funding through what are called requests for proposals. And so we, through the CDCN, may put out a request for proposal to do $100,000 or $200,000 worth of research. And as a rare disease, we might, we might get a handful of applicants, and then we'll pick the best applicant out of those five researchers who applied for the money, and then they'll do research, and then next year we'll do the same thing over again. And um, the prop, there's a number of problems with this approach. One is that um, what is the likelihood that one of those five people who applies for your grant happens to have the best idea in the world about what should be done? I mean, it's very unlikely. And secondly, what's the likelihood that the person who applies for it that has the best idea is also the best person in the world to actually do the work? I mean, just because you think genetic sequencing should be done doesn't mean that you're probably the best person in the world at analyzing genetic sequencing data, for example. Um, and so... What it also, the another problem with it is that it, it's not part of a strategy or a plan. It's every year you look at a new set of applications and you pick. And the next year you look at another set of applications and you pick. And so there's this randomness to it that um, <clears throat> that was really concerning. And so we said, okay, let's not do that because that's been happening for the last 50 years for Castleman's and we are where we are, um, which is not very far. And so let's come up with a new model. So we built the CDCN to bring together physicians, researchers, and patients, first virtually, but then also through in-person meetings with the goal that we would connect the community so the community could actually tell us and prioritize what research needs to be done. Not a handful of researchers applying for what they think should be done, but can the whole community tell us what research should be done, what questions need to be answered, and then can we prioritize those questions into the most important research questions and then go out and say, well, who is the best person in the world at answering this question at doing this kind of research? And then we would go out and we would recruit them and say, hey, we'll give you all the samples and the data and the funding you need to do the study. You're the best person in the world for the most important study for Castleman disease. And the first question I usually got from researchers was, what's Castleman disease? <laughs> and I'd always think to myself, oh God, that's not, that's not a good start to this. But the important thing is that they didn't really need to know what Castleman disease was. They just needed to be the best people in the world at doing the study. We could get them the samples, get them the data. We could share insights about the disease, but we wanted the best people to do it. And, and so that's the approach we've taken. Leverage the community to do the best science. And then from the best science, we would learn things about the disease. And something that's also sort of part of our our formula is to then say, okay, if we learn that one part of the immune system is really important from this research study we did with the world's expert, 
what drugs are already FDA approved that can actually fix that problem. So if we find out that the mTOR communication line is turned into overdrive, we can say, well, is there an mTOR inhibitor? We can try to, to knock this thing down. Maybe that'll treat the disease. And we always ask whether there are already FDA approved drugs that can do that because we recognize that if the drug's already FDA approved, it's already at your neighborhood CVS, we can get that drug into a patient within a matter of days or weeks, um, as opposed to if we find something that's novel, it's not yet approved, it's going to take us decades, maybe years, but it, but certainly could be decades before that drug gets into humans. And, and David, let's let's pick up on that last point, because that's, in fact, what, what happened in, in your case specifically. So you ultimately identified an approved drug that saved your life and was available at the local drugstore. Could, could you could you talk a little bit about how you you know uncovered you know this generic drug that that ultimately you know helped save your life? Yeah, so we talked through my starting the CDCN, and, and when uh, so you know I, I nearly died five times over a three year period, and um, it was the fourth time that I nearly died that I decided I would dedicate my life to trying to find a treatment, and that was when I started the CDCN. But in parallel to starting the CDCN, I, I also realized that. Um, we would need to look specifically in my particular blood samples, my immune system, to see if we could figure out what was going wrong in me so we could find a repurposed drug that could maybe maybe help me. I'm reasoning that if, uh, you know, if we could figure out a drug that could help me, it could also help a lot of other patients too. And so over the course of the next year, between my fourth and my fifth deadly flare of this disease, I was running experiments on my own blood samples in the lab. Um, I was storing blood samples on myself in the event that I were to relapse, I would be able to go back and do research on them. And sure enough, I relapsed and I, and I nearly died for the fifth time. And it was frightening and it was horrible and it was terrifying. And um, I, had, I had this amazing fiance by my side, Caitlin, throughout all of it, she never left my side. And um, the whole time I was fighting to try to stay alive, all I could imagine was, you know, being able to get married to Caitlin. And if I could just survive, and if this chemotherapy could kick in to save my life, maybe I can get back in the lab and I could find something that could, that could put my disease into remission. And I could get married to Caitlin. And um, through that research, I did find out and I discovered that a part of the immune system called mTOR that I, I referenced earlier was turned into overdrive. And um, that, you know, th that was really exciting because this communication line is really important for your immune cells to communicate with one another. It's important for them to turn on and turn off. And um, what was most exciting about it is that there's a really great mTOR inhibitor, something that blocks this thing that's been around for decades. And so I figured if, if this is is important to my disease, then maybe I could try this blocker of it. And maybe if I block this thing that's important to my disease, maybe I'll stay in remission and maybe this will save my life. Um, but there were certainly no guarantees. I mean, when we were looking at this drug and my data, um, the opposite could have happened. Maybe by turning off this communication line completely, maybe it was the only thing that was keeping me alive. Maybe it was sort of the last last bit of hope. <laughs> um, and so we had no idea, but there was no um, there were no other options. And I knew I was going to relapse again shortly. I knew there was no way I could survive to Caitlin and my wedding day. And so um, we decided that I would try this drug. It had never been used before for Castleman's ever. And um, uh, as you said, it was at my neighborhood CVS because it was already approved for kidney transplantation um, to prevent people from rejecting kidney transplants, again, but never been used for my disease. And um, so I, I shared the data with my doctors. At this stage, I had finished medical school, but I, I certainly didn't feel comfortable writing the prescription myself. Um, shared the data with my doctors, started myself on this drug, and um, 
yeah, it's been over eight and a half years that I've been in remission on this drug and just feels like such a dream. I mean, I was able to, to make it to Caitlin on my wedding day. We, we, got, we got married. Uh, we've had two just beautiful children. And during this remission, I, I've, I've been on a mission to, um, to do this for more patients. And so once I started benefiting from this drug, we started figuring out what other patients could benefit from it. We started giving it to other Castleman's patients. We found out that it doesn't work for everyone. So we started looking for more and more drugs like it. We've now found 10 more drugs like serolimus that uh, can be used in, used in a disease that they were not initially developed for. And now we're on this mission through the, the organization Every Cure that we launched this fall to really do this at scale across all drugs and all diseases. David, it's such a such an incredible story, and there there there's so much to dive into there and unpack. But there, two 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 really questions come to mind um, based on on a couple of things that you said. I mean, no, number one, you know, obviously you you had to take your own medical care into your hands to save your own life, right? And and so you know, you were in a unique position yes. to be able to do that, right? Being a, a, a you know in medical school yourself. But, you know, what about folks without your medical training, right? I mean, I find it hard to believe that someone without your training could have ever come up with a a solution. I mean, are there things that the rest of us could or or maybe should be doing to be more proactive about our own medical care? Well, that's exactly why we started and we launched Every Cure, because we believe that every drug that's at your neighborhood pharmacy should be able to be utilized for every disease that it can treat and that you shouldn't have to do research on your own samples to figure that out. And, um, you know, we basically are creating that Santa's workshop that we talked about (laughs) earlier in the call to basically have a team and the sort of data engine necessary to constantly be looking for new uses for existing drugs and then take the most promising ideas and opportunities and do clinical trials and prove they work. So that way, when you're diagnosed with that disease, we can tell you this is the drug for you. You know, we can deliver that drug to you by your Christmas tree, you know, when you need it. Um, So that way you don't have to go on the search for it. And so that's why we created Every Cure. It's a nonprofit organization we launched this past fall. And um, we are just on a mission to make sure that every drug is utilized for every disease and, and can help save every patient possible. And, and David, I want to jump into Evercure here in, in, in one minute, but I have one follow-up question. So as, as you mentioned, right, Serolimus, the, the drug that you discovered that works in, in your subtype of Castleman's, isn't effective yep. across all subtypes of Castleman. So no. as I sort of zoom out, right, from a, maybe a 30,000-foot, you know, vantage point, as I think about this idea of, you know, precision or personalized medicine versus how drugs are currently approved, Right in a, in a randomized controlled mm-hmm. clinical trial, which is a gold standard, yep. right? But there are you know a lot of drugs that have demonstrated some sort of clinical effectiveness in a subset of patients, but the overall trial fails, you know, in statistical yes. significance because there's a broad patient population. So how how do you think about these drugs that work in the case of you know n equals one, but are never approved or available because they were in a you know all comers clinical trial, for example? Oh, it's such a great question. Well. Um, we're really diving into that through this organization because uh, we recognize that it is really expensive and time consuming to get a drug to have a new disease listed on the label. And so that a label change is, is basically where you do a large clinical trial, like you mentioned, and you prove the drug works in this disease. And then the FDA adds that disease to the label of the drug. And that's, um, it can cost tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to do that. And so what we recognize is that to your point, if the drug only works in a, in a subpopulation of patients, 
um, and or if the drug is generic or the disease is rare, then no one is ever going to spend tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars to, to get the label to be changed, to actually prove that the drug works in that disease. And so what we're leaning into is this recognition that if a drug works in a portion of those patients, let's generate the data to prove that it works in a portion of patients or even just to unlock or unearth data that already exists that point to that it can be used in a portion of patients and make that freely and publicly available so that it's clear that, yes, serolimus is not currently approved for Castleman disease, but it's clearly effective for a portion of patients with idiopathic multicenter Castleman disease. And then we work with the organizations that set guidelines for particular rare diseases to make sure that that drug is on the guidelines. So even if the disease is not on the drug's label, if that drug can be on the guidelines for Castleman disease, then doctors will look at that and say, oh, maybe I should try serolimus for this patient who's not responding to some other therapy. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's incredible. And, I, you know, I've got to ask, what you, you know, th- there have been some obstacles for drug repurposing in the past. I mean, it's, it seems like it would be an obvious thing to try these days, but it, it there are systemic barriers that I think have prevented drug companies from doing this on a more sort of s- systemic level. You, you mentioned a few of those, but I'm just, I'm, I'm curious why this isn't done more routinely today. <laughs> you and me both are curious as to why it's not done uh, more frequently today. Uh, I, I, all jokes aside, I think that, I think I do understand it. I think the three biggest reasons that drugs are not fully utilized for all the diseases they can treat. I think number one is that no one is responsible for making sure that drugs are utilized across diseases. So drug companies are responsible, uh, that might be the right term, uh, to, to, to figure out the first use or the first few uses for a drug because they own the drug, they want to get it approved, and they want to demonstrate it can work in at least a few diseases. Um, but they certainly have no obligation or responsibility to figure out all the uses for that drug. They, you know, they have the right to choose whatever disease they want to take their drug in. I mean, that it's their intellectual property. They can do with it as they please. So drug companies are not responsible for it. Then you say, well, okay, what about the FDA? Well, no, the FDA is not responsible for it. The FDA is just responsible for saying yes or no to the diseases that that drug company presents to the FDA. So the FDA, if the drug company says, I want to get this drug approved for Castleman disease, the FDA says yes or no for Castleman's, but the FDA is not responsible for saying, well, have you thought about HLH? It's really similar to Castleman disease. It could probably also benefit from this drug. FDA is not responsible for that. That's outside of their jurisdiction. And then the NIH is also not responsible for this. NIH is responsible for generating the early insights around what's happening within diseases, how drugs work, but not figuring out all uses for all drugs. So no one in the entire medical ecosystem is responsible for making sure the drugs are utilized for all the diseases that they can treat, which I think is a real real tragedy because I can't think about anything that's more important than making sure that drugs in your pharmacy are utilized for every disease and every patient that could benefit from that drug. Billions of dollars go into every drug getting an approval. So much work and effort goes into making sure that it's available at your pharmacy. I really think we have to make sure that it's utilized for all diseases possible. So so one is no one's responsible. Two, there's no central database that can help to link drugs and diseases. So individual companies, individual organizations like the CDCN and others, we build these data infrastructures to find repurposing opportunities. Uh, And we build and basically re 
reinvent the wheel over and over again for our own purposes. But there's no central repository that says, you know what, tocilizumab might be useful for COVID or, or serolimus might be useful for calcimus, whatever it may be. There's no central database linking these all together. And then finally, probably the most important one of these these is that there's no business case for drug companies to repurpose their drugs for every use possible, particularly when the drug is generic or the diseases are rare. You know, if the drug's generic, no one is really making any money off selling additional um, doses of that drug. So no one is incentivized to spend tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to prove that it works in another disease if they're going to make sense uh, on a dollar for each each additional drug sold. Um, And then on top of that, it's really expensive to do these trials. And so um, as a result, this doesn't happen. And so through every cure, um, we've really addressed and, and tried try to target each of these systemic hurdles um, w- with coming up with what I think is a really exciting solution. And I couldn't agree more, David. And, and in fact, every cure has won financial backing from the Clinton Global Initiative. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about? Sure. So, um, uh, and and we're right around election day. I know that people will listen to this um, uh, post recording, but uh, given that we're around our November midterm elections, I'm sure no one wants to hear anything political right now. We've all been, we've all uh, uh, had enough politics in our life recently. But um, I will tell you that I got the most incredible call about a year and a half ago, um, and uh, uh, it was totally unexpected. But um, it was from President Clinton. He had read Chasing My Cure. And um, he called and it was March 31st. And the reason I mentioned that is because it was the day before April Fool's Day. And if you ever get a call from someone with a really strong Arkansas accent and they claim to be President Clinton, um, if you're like me, you would assume that they're actually not President Clinton uh, if it's you know the day before April Fool's Day. Um, but it, it was President Clinton and he had read Chasing My Cure and it really resonated with him. And um, more so than anything, um, what really got his attention was this idea that there were cures sitting on the pharmacy shelf that were not being fully utilized. And he thought about all of the, the money that he had directed the NIH to spend on research and the Human Genome Project and all the medical research he supported, whether it's HIV research and, and, and all, all sorts of research over the years. And he was really blown away by the idea that, that even with all this work being done, no one is focused on figuring out all uses for all approved drugs. And so um, we chatted for um, about an hour and he you know, shared his interest and, and shared a bunch of stories. We both went to Oxford and both went to Georgetown and so um, had some fun memories to reminisce on. And, um, and since then, President Clinton has really made it one of his primary focus areas. So he calls and checks in with me every couple of months and members of his team check in with me every couple of weeks. And um, they have really made it part of their mission to make sure that that every cure is supported and that we're connected with the right organizations and the right people to make sure that we can really uh, address this huge systemic problem. And I want to jump into some of some examples uh, around some uh, you know drugs that your team has identified already. But before I do, I, I want to circle back to to something you mentioned before. So obviously, there, there's a big disincentive from pharmaceutical companies to you know repurpose generic drugs just from a you know financial perspective. But I'm I'm curious as as you set up every cure. Why did you feel like a nonprofit organization was the right structure versus doing this as a, as a for-profit entity? 
It's a great question. And um, the, our, our reasoning for nonprofit versus for-profit, um, we a few reasons. One is that we knew as a nonprofit we could get a lot of data donated to us by companies. And, and we found that to totally be the case. So many companies, literally dozens of healthcare companies have come to us and said, if you can utilize our data to find new uses for existing drugs, please do. So medical record data, insurance claims data, pathway databases, the medical literature, it's, it's really amazing. So one is that we thought that we would be able to access data for free um, that would be donated to us. Whereas, of course, if you're a company, you have to pay for these data sets. And we would have, have to pay tens of millions of dollars for the kind of data that, that organizations are donating to us. Um, second, uh, we realized that the, one of the, re- the, the biggest opportunity in medicine, in my opinion, it's the low-hanging fruit that no one can make any money off of. So it's it's got the potential for massive human impact, saving patients' lives, but no one can make money off it because it's a rare disease or the drug is generic. And we didn't want to be in a position where we were going to have to put those opportunities aside like the literally hundreds of other companies have put those opportunities aside because we wouldn't be able to make a profit off of those opportunities. And so, so that's a, a second reason. The third is that when you are a for-profit company and you own these drugs and you're doing trials to prove they could be utilized in new ways, you have to have those results and, and, and these indications approved by the FDA. You can't be a company that does trials and then tells people, hey, you should use my drug. We, it hasn't been approved by the FDA, but you should use it for this other disease. That's illegal. Um, and it costs you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to actually do the work that gets the FDA to give you the thumbs up. But as a nonprofit organization, we can do uh, robust but efficient clinical trials that are much smaller, uh, that can demonstrate the drug works, but are not large enough or so big that the FDA is going to give an approval. But we can do that because we don't own the drug and we're not going to make any money off the drug being sold. So we can do a trial, we can prove it works, and we can tell people to take it because we're not making any money off of it. And so so this is all sort of combined to say um, this was the right thing to do now. And I think in the future, um, as we build this data engine, I think there probably will be opportunities to, um, to think about spinning out companies that could really accelerate the pace of this. But for now, um, we're really excited about the nonprofit route. And David, what, well, let's jump into a few a few use cases then. So I know your team at Every Cure has already identified drugs for repurposing. Are, are there a few examples uh, of the work that you and your team have done that that you can share? Sure, absolutely. So a few that stand out. Um, one is with uh, a drug uh, called pembrolizumab. Um, we discovered, well, actually, we didn't discover it. We uncovered research from 2013 indicating that. Uh, this one part of the immune system called PD-1 and PD-L1 checkpoint uh, may be important in angiosarcoma. Um, but it was uh, three years later, it wasn't until 2016, that our center um, actually did the studies to prove uh, in one particular patient that this was involved and was important. And then we started treating this patient with pembrolizumab based on this result. And again, this, we didn't even have to discover that PD-1 was important. We just had to uncover it from the medical literature. And so that, that's one of my favorite examples in part because this patient, the first patient ever on it that we treated has been doing well for over six years when he was given a three-month prognosis and told by his doctor that there was no way that anything could work for him. So I shared that example. It's my it's one of my favorites. Um, but also uh, examples of um, other rare diseases, a disease called HLH, where, um, again, it's a sort of obvious opportunity where this one part of the immune system called JAK is really activated in HLH, yet 
that jack inhibitor drug is not approved for HLH and it's not even used routinely. And so we've done work and we, we, we plan to focus on doing more work to prove that jack inhibition is effective in HLH and, and save lives. Kids with HLH die at a really young age because their immune system basically destroys their whole body. And um, this is, is an obvious opportunity um, that we're really excited about. And we also recently came across an example of a drug called amantadine that is a, it's a flu drug. And amazingly, patients with Parkinson's disease who got the flu and got amantadine noticed that their Parkinson's symptoms improved while they're on amantadine. Well, it turns out when you do the clinical trial, amantadine is actually effective at improving symptoms of Parkinson's disease. No one would have ever known that if it hadn't been for some patients making that observation and, t- and sharing that with their doctors. So these are the kinds of examples of both discoveries we've made, but also the kinds of discoveries that are out there to be made that we are really excited to build this data engine and to go after it full speed. And I should mention, you mentioned that the Clinton Global Initiative has been supporting this launch and we are very much in launch mode right now. Um, we announced it at the Clinton Global Initiative event in September, and we're currently engaging with potential philanthropic organizations and also individuals who want to donate to build this engine. Um, it's the kind of thing where everyone wants it built, um, but no one wants to wants to pay to build it. And so um, we are eager uh, for the right partners to help us to, to build out this data engine so that way we can really start saving lives right away. It's just incredible, David. And, and actually, I was going to ask about the the um, uh, funding. So obviously, the Clinton Global Initiative has provided some initial funding. It sounds like you're still actively fundraising um, to pursue everything that you're doing at Every Cure. Um, I mean, if, if people want to get involved, if people want to donate, if they want to learn more, how, how can they sort of learn more and get involved? Sure. So um, you can go to everycure.org to learn more about what we're doing and everycure.org slash donate if you want to donate to to what we're doing. And, um, you know, obviously I got into this world of rare disease and drug development and repurposing because of my own personal experience with this disease. And and as as you shared, um, wrote a book about chasing my cure. But really now this is about chasing our cures and recognizing that Um, I'm not supposed to be here. (laughs) The drug that's keeping me alive was never supposed to be given to me. It was not uh, not in the plans. Um, But the question is, how many more drugs can we uncover that are sitting in in our neighborhood pharmacies? And um, I don't know what drugs or what diseases we're going to uncover. In our first pilot of 147 diseases, we found 106 promising opportunities. So there's going to be no shortage of uh, of drug disease uh, combinations and opportunities to pursue. But boy, do we need to create this Santa's workshop. And um, like I said, I don't know what diseases we're going to uncover drugs for. I don't know what drugs are going to be. They may be a drug for someone that's listening to the podcast right now, or they may be a drug for someone listening to the podcast that you'll never meet but but could benefit from it. And I just feel this incredible obligation to dedicate however much longer I have on on this earth to trying to unearth uh, as many um, drugs that are hiding in plain sight as we can. And, and, and David, you know, if you, let's say fast forward three or five years, I mean, how do you measure the success of, of every cure? So number one is the number of patients impacted. That's, that's really, um, it, it's the number and it's also the depth of impact. And so uh, it's figuring out how many of these drugs did we advance forward and, and change clinical practice. Uh, we, we may not get 
that JAK inhibitor approved for HLH, but if we can prove that it works through a, a well-done clinical trial and we can work with the HLH society to make sure it's recommended, we can get patients on, a, on this JAK inhibitor and start saving lives tomorrow as opposed to a decade from now. So we're going to be measuring success by the number of drugs that we advance forward that, that were not being advanced, the number of patients whose lives were saved by our work, and, and frankly, also by the kind of movement we build here. You know, I mentioned the mission that I'm on, um, but we're not going to be able to do this alone. We know that we can. If, if this was easy, someone else would have done it a long time ago. But somehow medical research for centuries has completely avoided this important opportunity. So we can't do it alone. The number of people that are part of this mission that are donating to our work, that are donating data to our work, um, that's going to be an incredible metric that I, I'm really excited to measure as well. Yeah, David, I mean, I, th I think, as I mentioned before, you've inspired so many people and what you're doing with every cure, I think, is going to have such a such a huge impact. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to, to you know, that, that you're building this and to see where it goes. So, you know, David, we could probably talk for another another couple of days about these topics, but I, I, I do want to wrap and be cognizant of your time. And, you know, as, as you mentioned in, in your book, right, they used to call you the beast to your <laughs> physical strength, right? And how much you could bench press, with, which if I remember, was about 375 pounds. That's right. That's right. But who's counting? Who's counting? <laughs> yeah, pretty incredible. Um, but, but, you know, honestly, after everything that you've been through and, and fought through and the countless people you've inspired along the way and the lives you've saved, I've got to say you are much more of a beast now than you ever were at the height of your physical strength. So, uh, Neil, thank you so much. You know, if we had video on and you could see me during this you you would you would maybe not say that because i don't look like i don't look like a beast uh by by any means these days but you know I, I do have to say that um i have the most incredible team of people that work with me and have worked with me throughout this as you know my, my book's called chasing my cure but but i often say that we made a mistake with what we named it. we should have called it chasing our cures because it's been this incredible collective effort of people in medicine, outside of medicine, uh, people who are in business and, and have no experience whatsoever in this realm, who have just just driven um, uh, you know, after and chased after treatments for Castleman's and, and now so many other diseases. So um, really appreciate you, you sharing those kind words, but boy, do I have the most incredible team in the world. And um, uh, you know, anyone listening, if you're in healthcare um, and you want to get involved in some way by sharing data from your company, or if you're outside of healthcare and want to get involved by donating, please do. We, um, you know, we, we need an army for this. And, um, and, and together as an army, we can just make such an incredible difference. Could, couldn't agree more. So David, a, a huge thank you for joining me on the show today and for everything you're doing. You've had such an incredible journey and you've inspired so many of us. So, so thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for helping to raise awareness. This means so much, Neil. Well, Neil, what did you think? I thought that was a really amazing amazing discussion with with David. Um, I mean, we covered so much ground and his personal journey and story is just so incredibly inspiring. Um, and I, I, I think you heard us talk a little bit about this initial, maybe naive view that he had about the Santa Claus view of medicine, which I think is a view that many of us probably have, right, where there's a bunch of people working on specific diseases and trying to come up with new treatments and new therapies. And that's just not the reality that we live in. Right. I mean, a lot of this research is very disconnected. People are very siloed. Researchers aren't necessarily sharing information. And so you, you really heard David talk about why he created the, the, the Castleman's Disease Network in the first place was to bring everyone together to collaborate 
Um, and you hear, you know, you take that one step further, what he's doing at every cure is, is actually really trying to create this sort of Santa Claus, you know, idea of medicine where you are getting a lot of these collaborations where people are working to, you know, repurpose existing drugs that could have, you know, an effect on, on other diseases that they weren't approved for. And so I think just that, that, that was really incredible for me to hear firsthand from David. How about the case he makes for repurposing? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a, a powerful case for repurposing. Uh, I don't think anyone would say that repurposing is a bad idea, but you heard David outline some of the systemic barriers that repurposing faces, right? There are economic uh, barriers, right? It's, it's hard to make money off of generic drugs. Uh, it's very expensive to run, you know, randomized controlled clinical trials to get new indications approved for drugs. Um, and so just from a purely financial and economic standpoint, there are disincentives. Um, and, you know, David mentioned a, a number of other disincentives. So I, I think the approach that Every Cure is, is taking, and you, you heard me ask the question about, you know, why a, a nonprofit versus a for-profit entity. And you know, David gave some very good responses. You know, I think the way that they're approaching it makes a ton of sense. And I, I think, you know, they are set up to do this in a, in a systematic way with the proper incentives that they could really have a huge impact and, and really take this idea of repurposing to, to a whole new level. What about every cure's approach? What do you think of that? I mean, I think it's, I think it's a great approach. I mean, you heard how they're working with, you know, pharmaceutical companies and, and others to collect data, right? And they couldn't have done that in, as a for-profit entity, right? So this, this, these large databases are being donated. So, I mean, that's, that's critical just to have that data to, to, to mine, to come up with, you know, drugs that could potentially be repurposed for new indications. And you heard David talk about uh, some very specific examples and that they have already identified over, you know, a hundred drugs that uh, could be repurposed for, for new indications. So I, th I think that's, that, that's, that's hugely important. Um, taking a step back though, you know, you heard David talk about, you know, Serolimus, which was sitting on the pharmacy shelf at his neighborhood pharmacy, which was the drug that saved his own life. Well, it's amazing to think, well, how many other drugs are out there that are sitting on the pharmacy shelves for patients and that people just haven't connected the dots, right? And I think that is largely what they are trying to do. Um, and so it's just, I, I think it could be a really powerful force. I think they're going about it in the right way. You know, obviously they have financial support from the Clinton Global Initiative, right? So I think um, just from a you know purely social proof perspective, I think that carries a lot of weight. But, you know, that's only one piece of funding uh, out of a very larger pie that needs to be developed, right? And so you heard David talk about, uh, you know, approaching others for philanthropic investments, individuals, right? So I think this initiative is just getting started. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be, you know, costly to get a lot of this done. Uh, but I think they're, they're, they're getting started and they're making a, a big bang so far. Well, until next time. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast 
is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective. All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioBridge Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results.